welcome to another episode of Adoption Hacks. I'm your co-host, Candace Laycock, and we are just a couple days away from November, which is National Adoption Awareness Month. On Instagram, through Adoption Hacks, we're going to be doing a lot of fun stuff this month, some giveaways and a couple more Zoom meetings. We're going to be doing a Zoom meeting for hopeful adoptive parents. So if you are curious about the different types of adoption and have some questions or want to just get some info, this is going to be an incredible Zoom meeting for you to be a part of. We're also going to do another international family support group meeting through Zoom. So go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Adoption Hack so you can see the latest news and all of that stuff. Today on the show, it's a huge honor and I'm very humbled to have Tori DiMartil with us. Tori is herself a transracial adoptee. She's a, an advocate for racial justice and she's currently a doctor student in sociocultural anthropology studying the impact of systematic racism and domestic transracial adoption. In this episode, we're going to talk about the history of transracial adoption in the U.S. and some systematic racism in the U.S. adoption industry still. We also discuss very practically how adoptive parents and hopeful adoptive parents can prepare for their transracial adoption and what the future of transracial adoption should and might hold for us. Here's our interview. All right, welcome Tori to the show. I'm so glad to have you here today. Thank you, I'm excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about yourself, what brings you to adoption and what you do. Yeah, so I was born in Columbus, Ohio, and I was adopted into Northern Kentucky near the Cincinnati area by um, a white family. I am a biracial black transracial adoptee. So um, my family has always lived in a predominantly white small town, um, pretty conservative. So that's where I grew up. I was typically the only person of color in many circumstances, whether that was at school or at church. Um, but my parents were really invested in having material culture in our house, books, movies, dolls that reflected my identity and the identity of my biracial sister who was also adopted. Um, so I spent the majority of my life in Northern Kentucky and uh, went to Center College for my undergraduate, which was also in Kentucky. And then I finally moved out of the state for graduate school to Indiana University, um, where I'm pursuing my doctoral degree. So I am a sociocultural anthropologist and I study transracial adoption. I study... Um, less of the perspectives of other people in the adoption constellation, like social workers or adoptive parents. I prioritize the voices of transracial adoptees and understanding how they make sense of themselves and construct their identity when there are so many conflicting discourses and narratives around adoption that are coming from agency, coming from churches, coming from media. Um, how do they navigate all of those various ideas and come to a place of self-understanding. So that's my research right now. And I am in my fourth year of the program. I also run a Instagram account called Wreckage and Wonder 
that is loosely based on my research topic of interest. Um, so in that space, I provide resources for hopeful adoptive parents. I talk about identity, positive racial identity development, um, what it means to be uh, a biracial woman in America during this time. And um, I also blog and provide artwork on my website, wreckageandwonder.com as well. So that's a little bit about me. That's awesome. And I just personally, I just want to say um, for me, thank you for all that you have shared. I mean, I know how exhausting it, I can understand how exhausting it would be to use, especially your Instagram, which is how I got connected with you to, to use that for people like me, adoptive parents who want to learn and grow. But I know how tiring and exhausting that can be and just how much like legitimate work that is. And so <laughs> thank you for, for doing that and for being that, that type of person for us. Thank you. That means a lot. Um, what, what sparked your desire to go into this field of study? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's really based on my own experience. I'm kind of a selfish researcher in a way. Um, I grew up with so many questions about my identity. Uh, who am I? Where am I from? What is my racial heritage? How do I stay connected to my white family and my white community, but also find a bridge into the black community that I've longed to be a part of for so long. So all of these questions really focus on identity, belonging, race. And I found that in college, the classes that focused on those topics the most were anthropology classes. <laughs> and I didn't start out as an anthropology major. I started out as an English major because I love to tell stories. I'm a storyteller at heart. And what I love about anthropology is it marries those two interests. I can, you know, learn about and be educated on the social history of the U.S. and race and class. I can delve into what identity is for different groups of people of different racial and ethnic categories. But I can also write about it. Um, I can also listen to the stories of other people and use that as evidence in my research. So it really was kind of a serendipitous thing of like, oh, there's this discipline called anthropology that focuses on all my passions, but also at the root of it focuses on the written word and the sharing of those lived experiences. And it was kind of like, love at first sight. Okay, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> Clearly, you are the perfect person to talk about uh, transracial issues. I mean, I can't think of anybody who has, you know, you, you've lived it and you have devoted your life to studying it. So we're going to go through some of these like really deep, in-depth topics. And I just, I'm so looking forward to hearing your, uh, your perspective. So could you, uh, here we go, right out of the gates. Um, could you walk us through oh the, could you walk us through the history of some of the systematic racism within the modern adoption industry? Yeah, you're right. Right out of the gate. That's a big right. question. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and it's, it's a question that honestly could be a semester-long class, right? So yeah. I will just give a few concrete examples. You know, we're, we're in the current contemporary modern adoption moment. And we know it as an industry because there are businesses and organizations and vast networks that work together to facilitate the exchange of children. There are agencies, there are consultants, and fundamentally, there are customers, right? There are clients, hopeful adoptive parents that are interested in growing a family. And there are, you know, a lot of people who desire race matching in their family formation right? They would like to see their child resemble their physical appearance. But unfortunately, as so much has changed socially and culturally, the fact that um, abortion and birth control are options for many women across the board, the fact that many women are feeling empowered and able to single parent, the fact that there's no longer a huge societal stigma on illegitimacy and single parenting, all of these things have contributed to people aren't placing their children for adoption nearly as much as they were in previous decades, mm -hmm. which means there's a short supply of children available for adoption. And that's what produces this industry, right? There is a huge demand. There are more and more people who are waiting later in life to start a family. They're running into infertility problems and they look at alternative options like adoption. So that's kind of why it's discussed as an industry because it truly is built off of you know, this marketplace mentality of there are people that want children and there are children that are needed to fill those desires. So I wanted to explain that first because that's kind of what the industry means. Yeah. Um, but when you think about systemic racism within the adoption industry, there's tons of examples that you can think of presently, but you really need to like move back in history and look at other instances before our current moment. So if you wanna understand systemic racism, how it plays a role in disempowering and separating black and brown families, you really have to start with the experience of adoption within native communities throughout the 19th and 20th century. So during that time, the Aid for Families with Dependent Children, ADC is the acronym, um, expanded to reservations. It wasn't always available there. And that is part and parcel of the US government encroaching on the sovereignty of native communities. Previously, native communities were the ones that made personal family decisions. But when ADC expanded to reservations, state welfare workers were employed and given permission to remove children from a variety of situations that they were finding on reservations and within reservation communities. So poor housing, poor plumbing, um, overcrowding. These are all 
citations within social worker reports of why they felt it was justified to remove children from their homes. Mm -hmm. um, so overall, you know, welfare workers weren't necessarily recognizing that these kinds of just these kinds of inequalities in housing, in education, in employment that was plaguing the Native community, they weren't seeing it as a product of centuries of racism and colonialism. They're seeing it as a product of personal ineptitude on the part of Native mothers and fathers. So that is a you know, that is a paternalistic, racist idea of the inferiority of indigenous communities, their inability to parent. And those biases were part of the justification of removing those children from their families in the first place, wow. right? So they're not thinking of conditions of intergenerational poverty. Right. They're not thinking of the fact that for centuries, land has been confiscated from Native people. They're not thinking of decades of genocide and lack of federal assistance, right? So they're looking less at the structural issue, and they're looking at it as an individual personal responsibility issue, right? And that's what welfare workers do. They look at, are these parents individually responsible enough to be caretakers. Um, so a lot of the removal of these children was based off of these very Eurocentric views of family, mm -hmm. um, especially because social workers would go to reservations and they would see older children or grandparents caring for younger children. And they would say, well, that's neglect. Where are their parents? Rather than recognizing that a lot of indigenous communities operate on non-traditional non-nuclear child rearing practices. Mm -hmm. So it's a mad, it's the classic Eurocentric approach, right? Of evaluating another culture on the standards and values of your own. Right. So this removal of native children results in a bolstering of um, kids in state custody. So now you have all these children in state custody, which in turn equaled a large supply of adoptable children. Right. So the the government decided rather than funnel resources into the native community to ensure that they're able to raise their own children, remove them, place them into state custody and then make them adoptable to primarily white middle class Americans. Um, so in 1957, there was this huge push to get all of these Native children into homes. That mm -hmm. uh, you know they need homes. They they don't have families, and this came in the form of the Indian Adoption Project, which was the first and only federally initiated and supported transracial adoption program. I mean, it was explicitly to promote extra tribal adoption, putting native children in white homes. And part of that, again, goes back to this, you know, practice of erasing native culture, um, 
of devaluing family preservation, you know, the, the main push and thrust in this era was to assimilate Native people, get them to act white, to be educated in white curriculum, to start working and doing agricultural labor like the rest of society. So a lot of Native communities see the Indian Adoption Project as another form of pushing assimilation. You know, let's remove children, put them into white homes, and then we can start to extinguish the Native population and presence in the U.S. because they will have been immersed and absorbed into white middle-class families. And, you know, close to the end of the Indian Adoption Project in the late 1970s, you know, up to 35% of Native children had been removed from their families, placed in foster care, adoption homes, or institutions. So, I mean, this is something that the Native community is deeply wounded by. Hundreds of children were advertised in newspapers as free for adoption. And unfortunately, because um, they were not black, they were a popular choice for white families who could not, who didn't have access to white children because they're scarce, but also didn't feel comfortable adopting black children. So it's, it's, it's extremely complex. It's literally just one example, but you need, but it's important to recognize that that's the, that's the bedrock we're working on here. That is, you know, the legacy of welfare bias, of, um, you know, systemic racism that prevents the thriving of families and then blames families for the fact that they can't thrive and then removes their children into environments that are thought to be the best, mm-hmm. AKA the white environments. So yeah, that's, that's just one example, but I, I think it's important because people don't have much background in the, the removal of black and brown children prior to what we see happening currently in the modern adoption industry. I cannot believe, I mean, that's all shocking and horrific, but I cannot believe how long that went on. I had no idea. Yeah decades long and even before the Indian Adoption Project, Native children were being removed from their families and placed in boarding schools across the U.S. um, starting in the late 1880s. So if you think about it, 1880s to to almost 1980, that's a century of removing Native children to either put them in boarding schools, which eliminates their culture, their hair was cut, their language was prohibited to be spoken. Um, So it was either removal and placed into a white environment through boarding school or Mm -hmm. removal and placed into a white environment through the Indian Adoption Project, both of which were government initiated. Right. Um, So people nowadays think to themselves, why do black and brown people why are they not interested in the formal mechanisms of adoption? Mm-hmm. Well, 
look at the history. What reason do black and brown people have to trust the U.S. government to intervene in their family matters, right? So you're very right. It's, it has a long history and it's quite surprising because it's not taught. Yeah, I, I mean, I maybe have heard it mentioned, but never like into that depth or really understood that and that it went into the 70s. I mean, that is not that long ago. It's not. And the the effects of that are, are permeating our current mindsets and, right. and agencies. So this is so important. Yeah. Well, yeah. you can also think, you know, if you want to think about the Black community. Um, in the 1960s, there was a government report written by Daniel Moynihan. It's called the Moynihan Report. A lot of people might know it by that name. Um, and in that report, he was a sociologist, and in that report that was given to President Johnson, which then impacted economic reform decisions, Moynihan described the state of Black America and poverty as the result of um, negligent and incompetent Black parents, especially Black mothers. And that kind of research and analysis was put on the desk of the president, right? Mm -hmm. And there again, you see another iteration of that same idea. Inferior parenting, incapable, inadequate. um, Generalizations. Generalizations that are linked to, you know, you know, the biology of a person Mm -hmm. that, you know, oh, it's steeped in, it's inherent. It's inherent to the being of this racial group. That's a classic definition of racism, right? You know, using biology and claiming that there's an inherent inherent deficit Mm -hmm. makes one group inferior. So that same approach and bias and racist ideology that justified removing Native children from their homes was present in the 1960s and 70s within the Black community Mm -hmm. of, you know, they're not capable of parenting, the poverty is rampant, then you add the crack cocaine crisis and the fact that Black people were overrepresented as partaking in crack cocaine were over incarcerated for uh, drug use Mm. which results in families being separated so it's it's an idea and it's kind of a nugget of racism that has been used in multiple instances to justify the separation of black and brown families Mm -hmm. and no one's they're looking at it and thinking about the current conditions of the home or the family or whatever, but they're not thinking about the trauma effects of that removal from that family. And now exactly go through research that a child is better off most of the time with their biological family, if at all, even if it's not the best situation that we would you know, call the best situation or whatever, but the trauma yeah. being removed is just so great. 
It is. Yeah. That separation is detrimental in many cases. And there's been a lot of research that says, you know, the removal of children from their biological families, putting them into foster care, moving from home to home is equivalent to the kind of impact of drug use or alcohol consumption, um, which is what is used to justify removing them in the first place, right? So yeah, the, the trauma of separating families is big. And then it's also a, a matter of, you know, shooting someone in the foot and then blaming them for bleeding out, right? right? So like, oh, here are these mass generational barriers mm-hmm. to um, raising your children effectively in society. And when you can't do that, we're going to blame it back on you and your inferiority. And punish you for it. And punish you for it. Yes, exactly. You know, criminalize you for it. Um, You know, a lot of women who were um, using cocaine that were admitted for prenatal appointments were often um, arrested because testing, medical testing, showed that there was drugs in their system, Um, their children were removed, and several women um, gave birth and then were handcuffed and taken to prison directly after without having proper care. Um, Even though Black women are less likely to be abusing drugs than white men. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's just devastating the degrees to which we go to justify the current inequality that we see. And the issue again is this bandaid of adoption of, you know, Oh, not great environment, not proper care, whatever it is, move the child out. But that doesn't fix the fundamental problem. That doesn't provide housing, that doesn't provide an education, that doesn't, you know, fix any of the cracks in the foundation. It just furthers the hardship on the family and the child that is placed. Yes. I mean, most listeners are current or potential adoptive parents and that's something that I'll preach all day long is that if you are an adoptive parent or considering it you need to you can't end it there you need to be supporting all levels of this go all the way up the stream and support those single mothers and support families and whatever because if you truly care about adoption if you're an adoption advocate then yes you need to be like holistic, well-rounded. Perfectly said. You have to be an adoption advocate in in terms of advocating for what's best for the child, right? So I think a lot of people don't recognize, and it's painful, Mm -hmm. it's painful to say, but they have benefited. If they have adopted a child of color, they are benefiting from centuries of systemic racism 
that have made it near impossible for Black families to stay preserved, but has in some cases incentivized the adoption of those children into white families. And if you are, you know, truly about eradicating the ills that caused this trauma for your child in the first place, then you're going to be dedicated to making sure that adoption doesn't become the norm, but it becomes the exception. Exactly. That, okay, if it's absolutely emergency case scenario necessary, transracial adoption and adoption in general will be looked at. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if you're benefiting from another people group's loss and trauma and criminalization, you know, you can't be for your black or brown child if you're not for the reinstating of the black and brown family. Yes. Mic drop. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's so, that's so, so, so good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even want to add anything to that because that's so good. (laughs) Um, Okay. How do you see some of these things that you're talking about, this foundational, this systematic racism, how are you seeing that weaving its way into today, into our current adoption community and process? Another big one. I have these. Yeah. (laughs) For you. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's a good question. And it might sound redundant, but it really is just this layering of situations that contribute to a black or brown family losing their children, right? And that can start from lack of generational wealth that can then go to housing segregation and not getting loans for housing. Mm -hmm. So you can't get proper housing. Then it goes to, you know, um, employment discrimination incarceration, the fact that black men are incarcerated um, disproportionately to white men, they serve longer sentences. Then you talk about bail. You know, even if you don't have a violent offense, even if it's something minor, you still have to post bail. Mm -hmm. That's a financial barrier. A lot of families, family members will stay in jail for long, long months on end. That's a disruption to the family Mm -hmm. simply because they don't have the financial means to post bail, right? So there's all these different inequalities and, you know, filtering through the bedrock of our society that lead to black families not being able to keep their children, black and brown families not being able to keep their children. And then they move into the foster care system. Well, the foster care system is also plagued by bias and racism, right? Black children stay in foster care longer in comparison to their white counterparts, and they're less likely to reunify, Mm -hmm. which then shows a bias on the black family that social workers, you know, trying to assess if this family has been rehabilitated to a degree that they can bring their child home their racial biases are going to impede the release of that child, right, back into their home. So there's all these different moving parts, so to speak, 
that contribute to black and brown families losing their children to adoption or the foster care system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, unfortunately, I think rely on myths within the adoption community about um, why transracial adoption is happening in the first place, which doesn't take into consideration any of those inequalities or the fact that the opposite of those inequalities is that upper middle class white individuals are more financially stable. They have more access to generational wealth. Um, They're not impeded by redlining for housing. They have better access to education, all those things guess what? If you've adopted a child, you know that those aspects are criteria. Those are things that are looked for as are you in a good place, so to speak, to adopt a child. Mm -hmm. None of those things make you a good parent, right? They just are the social criterion that we have for giving a child a quote unquote better life, right? Not realizing that they could have a better life in their biological family if a lot of structural issues in our society were remedied. Um, So it creates this dichotomy between people that are able to adopt and people who are in the category of placing to adopt. Mm -hmm. And A lot of people like to rely on the myth that, oh, you know, black people just don't adopt. That's just not a thing. So, you know, we are only adopting black children because black people won't do it. And there again, there's this back to what we started with, this devaluation of black and brown parenting and the racist idea that black and brown people can't take care of their own kids, that they have to be placed into white homes to be properly cared for. And what does proper care even look like? Is proper care simply that they get to go to the aquarium on the weekends and they go to the best school and they can go to a trip to Europe after they graduate from high school? Because that's not proper care. That doesn't equate to... um, you know, giving a child everything they need to succeed. It's just social and, and monetary capital that white adoptive parents have that make them perceived as the better fit for adopting. So even when black people do go to adopt, there's the bias of, oh, well, they're not in the right zip code or they don't have the best schooling or um, fill in the blank. Or, yeah. You know, Um So there again, it's the blaming of the minoritized group for a situation and then the saviorism of the majority group of, well, let us just take them. We'll take your children and care for them because you cannot, rather than recognizing that there's tons of barriers for black people to adopt, let alone the fact that sometimes they're just not interested in allowing the government, based off of the government's history of intervention, participate in family matters. They don't trust the government and social workers. And not only that, they, 
they adopt all the time in their families informally. They just don't necessarily go through the institutional mechanism. Right. What do you, what do we need to see in the community? More Mm -hmm. training from adoption professionals, adoption agencies, doing more to guard themselves against that, educate themselves. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that one thing that's really hard is, you know, another example of this inequality and and racism within the adoption industry is black children cost less to adopt and the wait time is shorter. And unfortunately, that's incentivizing people to go that route for an expedient adoption process. So they are not as interested in the thorough education. They're not as interested in um, an in-depth home study. They're not as interested in looking at the ethics of the agency. Um, So, you know, part of the reason is to, you know, move black and brown children through the pipeline, Mm -hmm. but are we doing that at the expense of the proper preparedness? Right. And of the parents. Yeah. And what is that, sh- what is that saying to us? You know, it's just perpetuating. Exactly. That exactly. Value. Exactly. That value of, you know, okay, well, you initially came in thinking that you wanted to adopt um, an infant, white, healthy child. Um, but let's, Think about transracial adoption because the wait time for a white healthy infant child is two years, but you could be placed with a black child in less than two months. Right. And part of the difficulty of this is you agencies need money to stay open. They need money to keep operating. So if hopeful white adoptive parents that are interested in that quick, easy black baby are being told, well, you need to go through 10 hours of required training. You need to have two home studies and not just one. You need a written reference from a black or brown friend, right? These are all going to sound to them as barriers to getting their child. So they'll say, oh, gosh, we'll just go work with another agency that doesn't require so much of us, right? And then the agencies that are trying to do it right, that are trying to provide the extra education, trying to make it a requirement, are penalized because they're not getting the the fees from hopeful adoptive parents to help them keep the services going. Yeah. So I think part of it is changing the mentality in hopeful adoptive parents Mm -hmm. that this is less about what should I do when I get this child? Mm -hmm. And it should be more about, are you the right fit for this child? Mm -hmm. Are you even emotionally and spiritually prepared to be an adoptive parent at this point? Mm -hmm. If your goal is baby, what are you missing in that jump from, we just want a baby, so we'll be open to black children? What biases what assumptions what experiences are going unchecked because you're not doing the deep dive necessary to decide if you're even 
personally prepared to start sacrificing some of your deeply held beliefs about the world. Right. Right. So I think that the, you know, it's part, part of it is narrative change, Mm -hmm. but I think another part of it is, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not super privy to the, you know, institutional side of these things. So I'm not sure what it takes to make training mandatory and not just a one session on how to do black hair, right? Because raising a black child is so much more than doing their black hair, Mm -hmm. right? So I don't know what that takes. I, I, I would love, and that's, you know, part of the reason I'm in this study is to learn what I can so then I can connect with other people who have that knowledge and we can say, okay, what gaps do we need to fill all the way at the top of the river, right? All the way at the top of the stream. What kinds of fixes do we have to do all the way up at the top to stop doing damage control all the way at the bottom? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, it's hard. It, it's really, really hard for you know, trying to figure out what is going to ensure that this is an ethical process. And, you know, I personally think that's low hanging fruit. (laughs) Are we doing this ethically? That should be a given. You are severing ties, biological ties and integrating a child into a, into a new family. Mm -hmm. Ethics should be a no brainer. Right. Right. So you need to go beyond ethics and think about what is just, what is right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, that that means that hopeful adoptive parents have to be really astute. They have to read. Um, and I think some of the things you can look for in an agency is, okay, um, do they have any black or brown staff? Yes, that's good. And if they don't, do they have a plan to hire a cultural consultant of some form that can advise them? Maybe they don't have the money to pay a full-time staff member yet, but do they at least have an action plan? Then are the perspectives of transracial adoptees encouraged and visible Mm -hmm. in the agency? Um, I would also say... Uh, ask about home studies. Ask about, you know, if we go through our home study and we say that we're interested in white children, white or white passing Hispanic children, and then later we decide, well, we now want to be open to black children, what happens? Does somebody just come in and write an addendum that says, this family now would like black children? Or do they say, okay, great, now you're open to transracial adoption, here's the list of things you need to do before we update your home study, Mm -hmm. right? Because people are just moving through the funnel so fast, so fast, and they're not getting the proper education, Mm -hmm. and they're not asking the right questions. They're very self-centered questions. Mm -hmm. What should I do when my child experiences racism? Okay, why don't we start with, are you racist? <laughs> yeah. Like, 
For real. Maybe we should talk about what racism is and are you unconsciously perpetuating racist ideas? Mm-hmm. Like you need to answer that before we start talking about hair care and right. you know, what do I do when my child gets called the N-word? Like mm-hmm. you need baby food before you start eating solids. Like what are your privileges? What are what's your saviorism? What's exactly. your Exactly. Yeah, that's so good. Exactly. Those are like incredible tips. I hope that agencies listen because <laughs> um, because that's that's huge. And I mean, part of agencies listening is if we as adoptive parents push them to listen. You know, yes, we are. Yes. I yeah, I think you guys discussed that in um, in a video I'll reference with you and Charday and Ashley of you know we write the checks so yeah. So we need to have more of a voice instead of just wanting to, oh, I don't want to, I want my adoption to go through, so I'm not going to make mm-hmm. any waves. I'm not going to do whatever. Um, we we need to start calling people on this and, and demanding yes. it. There's a self-centeredness when you begin this journey, I think, as an adoptive parent, um, unless you just had the opportunity to learn through someone close to you, I think that it is all about, there's... And a lot of adoptive parents come to adoption from their own loss, from their own grief. Yes. And there's that desperation. Yeah. And there's a, I'll do whatever I have to do to be a mother, to be a father, right. you know. And right. and that, unfortunately, when we leave from a desperation, we're not going to be checking the balances on some of these issues that affect the child and yes. affect the biological family. I love when people, every once in a while, I'll have somebody, like, ask me about an agency to use or a program and say, like, okay, what's the quickest and what's the easiest? And I love when people ask me that because then it's, oh, like, Mary, what do you say? Because then I'm, like, I, now I get to I get to teach you, you know? Like, yes. thankfully, you're not going to, like, someone who's going to say, oh, here's how, you, <laughs> here's how you do it. But I'll get to say, like, okay, we need to, like, reset some of this foundation because you cannot go into an adoption wanting the quickest and wanting the easiest but I mean even in our like we adopted once and there were a lot of things that I didn't ask I didn't think about I didn't look for in an agency and now that we got through that and I I've learned so much now I can understand that and I can go into that in a second adoption and look for an agency that's doing it a good job but that's where we I think um to adoptive parents listening, I think that that is our responsibility. If potential parents ask us, I think we need to be like getting a little deeper on some of these things. I know sometimes we don't want to scare people off or whatever, but it's it's yeah. worth scaring them off if they're not willing to do the work. <laughs> it is. Yes, it is worth scaring them off. Yeah. I, you know, that's what I say in my client calls. It's okay if you decide transracial adoption is not for you. It's right. okay. That doesn't make you racist. It doesn't make you bad. It is better for you to come to the conclusion, you know what, at this point in our life, we are not prepared to take on that really important yeah. responsibility. It's better for you to say that now yes. and give that child a chance at the right placement mm-hmm. than to get yourself into a position where there's going to be lots of consequences for that child. And I love that, you know, you're calling on adoptive parents and hopeful adoptive parents to start speaking up, start using that valuable experience. You know, you don't do better until you know better. Mm -hmm. And 
lots of people are in, are in a position to say, let me help you know better. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you that knowing better isn't just for you. It's not just so that you feel better about the process and that you did it ethically. It's so that we create an expectation of ethical practice for black and brown families. Mm -hmm. So your push and your use of your voice is not just absolving you of any guilt. Mm -hmm. It's ensuring that at some level there becomes a pattern of people checking corrupt and coercive behaviors in agencies that then reduces the amount of situations where birth mothers are in a vulnerable place and are losing their children because someone else that they don't even know yet wants a child. What do you honestly think about the future of transracial adoption? Yeah, that's a really good question. I... The reality of it is transracial adoption isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, there would have to be serious, like radical structural changes yeah. in economic reform, in incarceration, in, in every layer to ensure that there is equal opportunity to thrive in parenting for white people and black people. Mm. And I just don't see that happening in the next 50 to a hundred years. Our progress is happening, but it's happening very slowly. Yeah. So my interest is twofold, right? I want to do the small things I can to limit the amount of unnecessary transracial adoptions. Mm -hmm. And I think that that comes in the form of these checks and balances with agencies um, of saying, you know, how do we get home studies to be more thorough? Mm -hmm. And the questions about transracial adoption to be more penetrating and difficult to answer. Um, I want to know, can you define racism? Do you even know what it is? I want to know if you know what white privilege is, and I'd like you to give me an example. Mm -hmm. I want to know what your plan is for Uncle Bob that says something racist at the Thanksgiving table. I want to know if you're willing to sacrifice familial relationships. Mm -hmm. Like, those are the questions that need to be asked in a home study. Not like, do you feel like you're prepared to adopt a transracial child? Well, what are they going to say? No, Mm -hmm. right? So I think there are those small changes that need to happen to weed out, like we just said, people who are not doing it for the best reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I also think that we need to start funneling more resources into equipping the black community to adopt black and brown children. There needs to be better information. There's a ton of misinformation. Agencies need to provide a certain percentage of their budget. If you think about it, their budget is usually very high on advertising, right? Mm -hmm. On websites and things like that. But what is the budget for advertising and recruiting and retaining black and brown hopeful adoptive parents? 
-hmm. There needs to be a specific budget for that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so that's, that's another thing that I think is important is equipping and empowering and informing the black community to come alongside and adopt black children. Yeah. Um, And then the other side of it is if it's going to happen, if transracial adoption is going to keep happening, getting to the parents as soon as possible, Mm -hmm. as soon as possible. Sometimes when I get to the client call, it's too late. They're already set in their ways that, you know, they're going to be matched next week with a birth mother who's black and they don't know squat. (laughs) And I just have to do my best to give them resources and hope they follow up. Mm -hmm. Right. So instead of, you know, okay, the child is an infant or two or three or four years old. And now they're starting to go to workshops and webinars. We need to like front load the education at the very beginning um, so that there's no way they can get to step four without knowing the answers to these questions. Um, So yeah, it's a hard question. I mean, ultimately I want black and brown children to stay in black and brown families. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want more people to experience the loss and trauma of adoption, regardless of their race or ethnicity. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I don't expect that there's going to be radical changes that's going to eliminate the need for transracial adoption. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's hard. I, I think it takes networking across multiple spheres mm-hmm. to problem solve and say, okay, what do we do? We've, we've got a, you know, we've got a patient in cardiac arrest. <laughs> what do we do mm-hmm. to like stabilize the patient? Yeah. But then like, also what do we do to look back into this patient's history, into experiences, into diet, into environment, to think about why the cardiac arrest happened in the first place. And to me, that's the that's biggest really thing. That's the biggest thing that agencies, consultants, birth mother advocates are not asking themselves. They come in with a very, unfortunately, white-centric viewpoint Mm -hmm. of how do we get black and brown people to do what we want? How do we get them to place their children for adoption? How do we get white parents through the process? Mm -hmm. And my instinct is you're asking the wrong question. Yeah. Why is this necessary in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why is it necessary in the first place? And nobody has an answer for that because nobody knows their history. Nobody is taking stock of racial bias within social workers or agencies. So... I mean, it really does have to be a twofold process of, you know, getting the people that are going to transracially adopt anyway, regardless of what the situation is, getting them the knowledge that they need as soon as possible. And then the other side of it is getting the people in power, the knowledge that they need as soon as possible so that they can change their practices so that it's a more equitable and anti-racist process. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you for answering that. 
I don't even know if that was an answer. <laughs> no, that was really good. And it just shows, like, that this is this is complex. Yes, it is. There's a lot to it. Um, um, well, thank you, Tori, for your... My, my mind is, like, exploding right now. <laughs> thank you for doing that. Um, but it just, you gave, you gave us so much to think about and to, to move forward from. You know, it's not just here's other problems, but it's, like, very real and practical for adoptive parents. So thank you so much for walking us through all of oh, that. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for asking me. I just, I love talking about this, and it's always really encouraging and refreshing, especially to have adoptive parents come to the table and be so receptive. So thank you for the invitation and for highlighting transracial adoptee voices. I mean, that that's honestly the first step in a long mile of necessary yeah. things. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and where can we find you? So I am on Instagram at wreckage and wonder. And um, now that I'm in the throes of the busier time of my doctoral degree, I'm not as present on Instagram, um, but I do offer resources there. And then you can also go to my website, uh, wreckageandwonder.com, where I have resources for adoptees, for hopeful white adoptive parents, and then resources that share birth parent perspectives. Um, I blog there, sell artwork on that website. And if you're interested in scheduling a consultation um, if you're a hopeful adoptive parent or an adoptive parent and you just want to talk through things, um, get advice on specific situations or, or um, discuss how to start cultivating positive racial identity for your child, no topic is off limits. And I provide those consultations through the website. Um, yeah, so those are the two places that I'm most active that's our show. Thanks so much for listening. In the show notes, there is the link to Tori's website where you can see everything she's got going on, as well as an opportunity to thank her financially for her time with us today. Definitely check that stuff out and we hope you guys have a wonderful week.